Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? For the here and now, I, I want to start selling out Salah Stadium before we, we kind of jump ship on Steve Eva. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Uh, Roy Curtis, what's the story? Johnny, good to see you. It's normally at uh, race pre- preview nights for Cheltenham we meet up and It is indeed. Um, and you are in, you're deliberating what to do for the weekend, which will be part of the chat we'll have about liking life too much and trying to do a JD on it and be kind of good about life and be well, be sensible. To prove that I'm a, a creature of abstinence, I was going to go to Dublin and Wexford, but I came in here instead. So now I have to meet some friends in the pub and watch Dublin and Wexford and Waterford and Limerick. It's just, it'll get you down this stuff. It will, you were telling me your nephew, Keen Curtis, is part of the... Shamrock Rovers Revolution, their academy. One of their, he's two thousand and four, which would put him at their under, eighteens maybe. Yeah, yeah, he's doing his he's doing his leaving certs this year. He's my my brother's young lad. He played a couple of games uh, with the first team in pre season, and his younger brother again, Alex, is um, is an underage goalkeeper who's um, who Gavin Bazuna has been in a, contact with regularly. So they're. Oh. Uh, they're very immersed in it up there, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny, you have another side of the family where there's a another nephew, Cahill McCabe, playing Christy Ring for, for Kildare tomorrow and he's consumed by hurling, so the uh, the sporting genes are there, all right. Kieran Cunningham, what's going on? You tell me. What's going on in Johnny World? We're telling me you're happy, Johnny World. Somewhere nobody wants to be else. Well, I, I mean... Except Johnny World. Yeah, I've I've seen I've seen like I've I'm 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 not on Twitter, but I I have to kind of monitor it for my uh, for my work or whatever, and I've seen nothing but you on about boxing in recent weeks. Um, so it's it's really kind of piqued my interest and got me to look back on the panorama documentary of year and a half, which I remember watching during lockdown. Um, this story is 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 so so crazy. Without what's happened, I suppose in the last week, there's only one place to start here. And what's the latest on Mr. Kinahan, Tyson Fury, and boxing in general? Well, um, it's, it's changing so quickly from day to day, from even hour to hour, that so much is coming out. It's like it's a story that anybody who's covering it, it was quite slow and laborious for years and for the authorities who were trying to track down the Kennehans. Mm. But then it just accelerated so quickly because of the American involvement. And, you know, there's uh, what, what's fascinating about this story is a lot of the documentation that is telling us a huge amount of the story is publicly available. You know, it's... Like I, I was trawling through records and companies' house in London, and you you come through all sorts of connections. And one of the things that really strikes me with this is how often people just lie to your face, John. Like yeah. the amount of people in boxing who have lied over the years about Kinnan and MTK and the connections between the two. And, Did you buy uh, some of them lies? Uh, so, no, not really. No, no, because you, you you hear you hear enough from other people, even off the record, to know what's really happening. And MTK never made any sense, much sense, if there wasn't a Kinnan involvement, because where on earth did all the money come from to expand to 15 different countries, 25 different cities, and expand very rapidly during COVID and lockdown when, when the rest of boxing was going through a serious recession, because there was very little happening. Mm. But um, uh, it's, it's, it's a real relief that this is happening now, because it's, an, it's been a very important sport to Ireland historically, and it's so many at amateur level uh, so many coaches are essentially unpaid social workers and they do great work and like one of the reasons i got interested in this story was um 
I just got to know Michael Darren McCauley a bit, the former Dublin football. Over I actually last saw year. him on the street randomly yesterday. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, you often bump into Mick randomly in the street. That's was, how, I think that's he was carrying like a skateboard or something. I want to say. Yeah, he, he skated. He, he just yeah, looks. He looks. He looks so cool. I was like, well, that's how that's how he did his cruise ship. Uh, he was on a skateboard at a wedding uh, <laughs> five years ago, so uh, it was kept quiet for five years. Just Dublin, don't tell you anything, which. <laughs> It seemed, seemed to work out okay. Lied, but there you go. Yeah, it seemed to work out okay. But yeah. so good luck to them. But um, like Mick works in the north inner city, effectively, uh, you know, with the community there. My 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 wife in a previous life was a community worker in the north inner city, and I would walk a lot around the city. And like it's an area that's really stigmatized, you know. And there's there's good people everywhere, but that area was so damaged by the Kinnahan Hodge feud. Like if you go around the Five Lamps, which is such a landmark in there. Seven people were killed just in a handful of streets around there. And that's, you know, that's just near where Kelly Harrington lives, is from. That's near where Emmett Brennan is from. Within walking distance, there's about, you know, we say walking distance, half an hour's walk, there's 15 boxing clubs. There's a street off Sean McDermott Street that's called Champions Avenue because so many boxing champions came from there. So the connections were there that a lot of the, what, the damage that Kinahan did was in boxing country, was in traditional Irish boxing country. And to me, it was always a sports story as much as a crime story. Like the running was always done, you know, by the crime cars, like, you know, Nicola Talent, the Sunday Word, Rami the star, and Stephen Breen, the son, etc. But I always thought, it, you know, the sport angle had to be got, gone after too. That it was, it, boxing mattered so much to Ireland. And that this guy was becoming one of the most powerful people in, in a truly global sport, that that had to be looked at. Um, and uh, I just hope the sport can recover from it now because I think it's it's taken such a, a, a hammering over this but before, and the way people within boxing have allowed it to happen. Yeah, I think Roy's going to touch on that point shortly. I do I do want to ask you, like, I, I subsequent to watching that Panorama documentary, which whenever that was, was it like a year and a half ago or something? Uh, yeah, it was February, 12, February 2021, yeah. So just over here. So after that, I kind of, you know, I'm not really into boxing, so I sort of forgot about it. Um, but when this came up again, um, and obviously, you know, the developments of recent weeks, I didn't know anything about this podcast that you were planning. And just from a journalistic mm. perspective, um, part of you must be like, you know, almost like the people who went after Michelle Smith or went after that story where they were waiting for something to happen. Part of you must be like, okay, I, I'm well on top of this, but now it's developing at such a rate. Can you even keep the podcast up to date? Yeah, well, that's that's been an issue over the last week, to be honest. A lot of it just to be redone because, mm. it, you know, it dates fairly quickly. But uh, I'll be I'll be very happy to get out there, Johnny, because, it, uh, like, if you do my normal job, like, it, like, it's not like you're given six months off to do this, but I've been doing it on the sideline for six months and it takes up a huge amount of time. And it's very frustrating because uh, anyone who covers the story, it's really hard to get anyone to talk about it. It was for various reasons. One, a large part was fear, fear of the Kinahans and any possible uh, cartel and any possible repercussions. Also, just people not want to stick their head above the parapet because even if they didn't think, you know, there was any fear of a reprisal, there's so many connections. Like people who have no connection to MTK, like boxing is still a very small world. So you would find uh, that they just they just thought it was too much of a hassle. So like interview, even people had agreed to interview. Some of them were subsequently pulled because they had to change of heart, mm-hmm. or um, you know, or or they agreed to do an interview and then they changed their mind at the last minute. So so it's been a quite frustrating process. But I think it's work it's, it's working out. Like it's not going to be this exposure because everything is out there. 
because not suddenly Daniel, Daniel Kinahan was doing this. Like We all know who he is and what he is. We've always known. Mm. But it's more going into a broader thing, looking at the sport, uh, particularly in Ireland, and the impact it's had, why the sport was important, what he's done to uh, different communities, and, you know, and, and looking at is there a possibility of a fight back and telling some of the Irish... I, I just trying to keep it a bit fresh. Like I think, I think it's a, it'd be a decent listen, but like obviously I'm biased and I'm very close to it. But uh, we'll see how it goes. I there was there was one time in my journalism career where I felt a little bit uh, threatened, and it was to do with um, basically hockey league of Ireland games. And yeah, I was bas- essentially advised that I was going down a road that you know this wasn't just a few lads having you know like uh, the, the centre back and the centre forward saying listen have a score on yourself score the first goal it was way way deeper than that so that was an interesting that was one of the more interesting parts of my journalism career and uh, unlike the likes of Veronica Guerin I stopped straight away <laughs> I was like I'm not getting into this I, I you know I, I want to live my life did you feel afraid at any stage? Uh, that's a good question my wife Peggy would have asked me a few, on a few occasions to let, let it go but uh like, I, 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 I talked to Mick O'Toole about it, who does Crime for the Star, and, you know, I just asked him, because he would have been ex- very experienced, and, you know, Mick says the only threat he ever actually got in his career was from the Hutch side. Mm. You know, he thought, you know, that Kenan is so obsessed with his image that, you know, cr- crime corps don't have invisible suits of armour. They get on with it. You know, they're very brave people. Mm. And in a way, this story is a vindication of tabloid journalism. Jockin gets a kicking. Yeah. But... The bulk of the story has been exposed because of tabloid journalists, uh, particularly on the crime beat. You know, and they deserve a huge amount of credit for that. Like the two, the two books on 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 Kenan, you know, are by Nicola Talent and Stephen Green. You know, so a lot of people have used that, like Panorama, uh, uh, the Guardian said they, they use that as a base when they're reporting on these stories. Yeah. So and you know, it's 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 a vindication. Like you see, it's quite funny from a media point of view watching others play catch up now. You know, mm-hmm. and like people who are a bit sneery and sniffy about this story, but it was always a story that mattered. You know, it, it should have been a big story everywhere for a long time. You meet a lot of people playing Astro. Stephen Breen is one of them, and um, you could see with the panorama stuff they were using footage that the tabloids had in terms of, like I don't know if if you haven't seen this, they were uh, they were effectively showing people being gunned down in real, uh, you know, real TV, and yeah. it was just I don't know, Roy, this is shocking to watch. Um, this is not the can wire, I, I, Johnny. Can I just say something very quickly because Stephen Breen's book was written with Owen Conlon. Mm. I just don't want to leave him. It's important that he gets credit. As well. Absolutely. Sorry, Good to mention that as well because yeah, it's not easy to write a book like that. Um, this wasn't the wire. This wasn't uh, Peaky Blinders. This was real. Like Nicola Talent to be one of my closest friends, and I would have been very friendly for a long time with Paul Williams. And you see what they're doing on a day-to-day mm. basis. And Kieran, to give him credit, has stepped into that arena, and it's it's a forbidding arena to to step into. There's no question about it. I would certainly think twice about it. I mean, I would have grown up as a very big boxing fan, and Boxing has shaded the landscape of Irish life in such vivid, uplifting colours. I grew up in a, a part of Dublin called Mount Talent, and Mount Talent Boxing Club, McDowling's Club, is based just around the corner. And having a club in the community like that, um, particularly but not exclusively in sort of socio-economically challenged communities, is, is really very, very important. It offers an alternative to a lot of sort of potential pitfalls in life. It offers positive role models. It offers structure. It offers a pathway to somebody who wants to do something with their life. Um, and if that's besmirched, if the reputation of boxing suffers, then the whole thing falls with it. I was um, a teenager in, in 1980s Ireland and 
it was a sort of socio-economic wreck. You had long dole queues, you had endless emigration in, in the north, you had bombs and bullets and fear and loading. And into that vacuum of, I don't know, hopelessness, stepped this mustachioed, charismatic figure with a with a peace dove on his shorts, Barry McGuigan from the border town in Clonus. And he really brings home to me the importance of boxing because at a time when there was very little hope in Ireland, he provided it. It was a sort of, when he when he beat Eusebio Petrosa in Loftus Road in, in June um, 1985, um, QPR's ground, it was a sort of an affirmation that seemed to say, you know, it's all right to be Irish. Anything in the world was possible. Um, and it, it, it really had, for, for those of us a few years older, I was subsequently at Euro 88 and Italia 90, it had that same vibe. And that that is the importance of boxing. But it's it's fragile because it generally attracts criminality as well, historically. I mean, you only have to look at the stories of Jake LaMotta, Sonny Liston, to find out, historically, the attachments of crime, mafia, boxing... That should never excuse what goes on, but it's matter of fact. And Kieran references Kelly Harrington um, and the positive effect she had on the community. I walked down Portland Row on the way to the Cork Kilkenny hurling semi final last year, and it was the day after um, Kelly's gold medal. And just the sense of joy, this sort of euphoric rush that was all around the place. And you're thinking, this is the very same community as Kieran said in which people are being mown down in the very f- in the very feud that involves the individuals we're talking about now. The other thing about Daniel Kenahan, from my understanding, is that you get sports washing and you get like um, questionable characters getting involved in sports for um, b- bad reasons. He actually seems to really like boxing. So you get like this this guy who's essentially from the inner city and probably thinks he is doing good, but like boxing, how can it just like shut its eyes and say, yeah, this is grand? Well. Whether he thinks he's doing good or not, I'm not sure. But there certainly was a level of interest. Jerry Hutch was very involved mm. with, with boxing mm. as well. Um, so both sides of that feud. The reality is, if you're in working class communities, boxing is one of the big unifiers. Mm. Um, it's one of the few sports that prospers in inner city communities, not just across Ireland, but across the world. And people who are successful in life, whether through legitimate or illegitimate means, tend to get involved in it. And that that is the reality. But there's a sort of a coexisting with that is the cliche that boxing and crime, ah, should they go hand in hand? Sure, aren't they all only working class? You know, which is utter and absolute nonsense. As as Kieran said, and I thought it's a brilliant description, these guys are effectively social workers in the community, mm. the people who volunteer. So they don't... They may not have come out and criticised all that was going on because it's difficult if you live among the community, but quietly, silently, and a huge number of those will be very happy with all that has unfolded this week. Um, in terms of what's unfolding at the Emirates Stadium, um, I, I don't know, if you're, if you're a Man United fan, I don't know, it's, it's just mad following this season. Bruno Fernandes has just missed a penalty to make it two all and they would have um, you know, been 2-0 down. They were in a bad situation. Fernandes did a kind of a stuttered run-up Dinked it left. Ronaldo doesn't look happy at all. He's kind of like his lips moving in a very um, I'm not happy at all manner. So Fernandez just he basically does this kind of nonchalant hooked wide penalty off the, the post. Jorginho penalty. The Jorginho penalty. Fifty seven minutes. Two uh, one. Getting back to you, Kieran. Um, yeah. 
just in, in terms of so like if you're not if you're not into your um if you're not into your boxing and the nuances of how it's regulated and how we could get to a situation what we had during the week is that MTK Global ceased operations. What does this mean? Uh, well, it means one of the most powerful management companies in, in the sport is gone now. And, um, you know, some people think, oh, they're just uh, they pop up somewhere else under different guys. But I'm not so sure that will be the case because the Kinahan's priority now is to stay out of the, uh, the clutches of the authorities and mm. uh, preferably probably get out of Dubai because the net is closing there. But the world has got small for them. There's not that many places to go to. Like you referred there to to his love of boxing, um, you know, genuine love of boxing. He's from the inner city. Like he's from Oliver John uh, John Bond Flats. Oliver said. Bond, isn't it? Oliver Bond Flats. Yeah. And but he he's um, he's the son of a millionaire. Mm. You know, he's a millionaire son. Christie was a millionaire through through crime. So you know, it's not like he was selling cabbages in Murray Street <laughs> of a character. Like he's he's no working class hero. And he's been, you know, there's been an attempt to paint him by that as that by some people and his love of boxing he might he might well love the sport but i think per- primarily why he went in there like his first involvement in the sport was actually horse race you know that's when he came to prominent was the kieran the kieran fallon uh, race fixing trial when they were all eventually cleared but he he called to fallon's house in the middle of the night with a couple other a uh, couple of heavies from spain and uh they were very annoyed that fallon had won a race that they expected him to lose and uh, that's the first time, uh, you know, he, he came to prominence in a sporting sense. So I think what he was always... He loves his racing too, does he? <laughs> yeah. So I think, it's, to be honest, it comes down to ego and arrogance. And the way boxing, there's no real proper governance in sport in boxing. And he saw a way there for him to become the Mr. Big. Whereas in most sports, he wouldn't have got in the door. Like, he wouldn't have been allowed to take an underage soccer team or GA team because he wouldn't have passed the most basic guard of vetting. But there's, there's no, especially because he called himself an advisor, he could do what he wanted in the sport. The, the British Boxing Board of Control said there's no way he would ever get a manager's license. And he was a manager, but he called himself an advisor. So they said they couldn't do anything about it, which is an absolutely ludicrous situation. Mm. And unless it changes, another kid could come in and do the exact same. And boxing's uh, instinct, like uh, Roy mentioned in McGuigan Patrols, I've always thought if you wanted to explain 1980s Ireland to an outsider. I would show them a clip of the, the video of that night in Loftus Road because everything was in the mix. The troubles, emigration, you know, a little green shoots, uh, you know, of recovery there. You know, there's a little bit of hope to cling on to. And, you know, and the emotion and everything, passion. And the people, you know, got on with it in very tough times. And that McGuigan night, like 20 million people watched it on, on TV. Like, it was, it's, it's, it's it was hard phenomenal. to explain the, the impact it had. And but, it, yeah, in in the second half of the show, we'll talk about um, snooker. And I guess, you know, mm. you look at Dennis Taylor and uh, the audience that snooker could garner back in the day as well. But Tyson Fury hasn't covered himself in Glory Hero either. Nobody who was close to Kinahan have covered themselves in Glory because they're backtracking, their denials they're squirming away, have really exposed them terribly. I mean, Fury was happy to to give a big um, thumbs up and to praise Kinahan continually when he thought the fight with um, his his made his first his first world title fight had been made, and now he's saying that it's not his fault just because someone's criminal. He's not supposed to. He he doesn't know the details. I mean, essentially, what you're seeing, Kieran said about people lie through their teeth and that's what you're seeing 
when the gravy train was calling at their station and it was being driven by MTK Global, they were happy to jump on that train. Now they're furiously jumping off at high speeds and they're just lying through their teeth. And, you know, the Fury story, you would think tonight there's, what, 94,000 people and the, the fight, the record purse of 41 million. And you think, my God, maybe with MTK, maybe boxing's in a bit of trouble. It's the people are behind it. You saw with every controversy that touched Conor McGregor, mm. his popularity seemed to grow. Mm. Um, is there any such thing as bad publicity for Tyson Fury? Unless something becomes legal, he's basically untouchable. In terms of the Kinahans then, um, Kieran, like so, it's it's as you say, the net is closing in in the Middle East as well. Where do they go from here? Well, like if they set foot in European soil, they'll be arrested straight away. They're not allowed to enter America. So where are you looking then? You know, there's a lot of because of the American involvement. There's a lot of countries that won't want to take them. When you think about Dennis Rodman, North Korea could be a reasonable option. Yeah, well, but that's what I was actually going to say because a lot of countries won't want the heat coming from Americans. So you're looking at what are essentially often regarded as rogue states. So you are looking at countries who regard themselves as enemies of the US that might possibly open their doors. But I think the likelier scenario is that they will be arrested sooner rather than later. I think, was it was it something you said to uh, to Donald McRae, Kieran, that mm-hmm. some criminal underworld figure had, had suggested that they may be moving to Afghanistan? I thought that was extraordinary. Yeah, there's a... Uh, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Russia, North Korea, and there was one other. Uh, I read somebody mentioned as well. So um, I don't know. Like it's what a life that would be, you know, hiding in uh, hiding in North. It'd be Korea. hard to hide no North Korea well at the same here. time, yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Dennis Rodman had a bit of crack over there, of course. Yeah, as in Matt Cooper, actually. That was one of the most bizarre stories ever. It features in Aaron Rogan's book about Paddy Power, where it's like that. I actually forgot how much of a basket case of a story that was. It was, yeah, yeah. Matt made a documentary. He did. 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 It's funny, I would have been uh, a big Chicago Bulls basketball fan and went over to see a lot of their games. And Rodman was always sort of crazy and lived on the edge and did wild stuff. But when he showed up in in North Korea, basically to to bring world peace and to, to incorporate North Korea into the world, wonderful stuff. Absolutely mad. Yeah, it's um, it's two all in the game at the Emirates Stadium. Manchester United, a brilliant, brilliant move. I didn't see who hit the strike. It, 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 it hit the, it hit the post anyway. So Arsenal, kind of um, holding on for dear breath. And um, just very briefly before we go to the ads, Roy. I mean, it's it's been a hell of a, a season for Man United, and it just if the if you were if you wanted something just to like fill headlines and be dramatic, this is what they've been like. It's a study in chaos. Anything that could happen would happen. But I think the real key thing, and Roy Keane referenced it last week, it's almost gone from anger to hopelessness. Mm. You like a bet. United, back in their pomp under Ferguson, were regularly close to odds on starting the season. If I offered you now 5-1 to one on United winning a league in the next five years, would you take it? I probably would, actually. Uh, I'll have a bet with Joe in the, uh, over the ads here. No. Legally, okay, of course. Well, limits... No sanctions. Legal limits do apply, of course. We've plenty to talk about after break, including the boy Roy's quest, or otherwise, to live a clean life and to turn down all temptation because abstinence makes the heart, if not grow fonder, possibly better. We'll be back after break. Welcome back. It's Johnny Ward with Roy Curtis in studio and Kieran Cunningham uh, is on Skype and Manchester United have gone 3-1 down. I mean... 
I don't normally have much sympathy for them but I have to have a lot of sympathy for them this game an awful lot has gone wrong and after very very nearly um, getting to two all and quite possibly winning the game maintaining their hopes at the top four Granite Jacka has just scored an absolute screamer 72 minutes gone um, 3-1 let's talk snooker what does snooker mean to you uh, isn't it an anachronistic uh, sport that basically um, is out of kilter with our desperate desperate attention spans as I say this I'm actually looking at the laptop because um, I even I can't just keep talking without doing something else Roy it is a problem though it's like and you mentioned to me before the show you used to watch regularly you know you remember the great days and days the 90s and then you said darts has kind of overtaken and I was like well that's quite that makes a lot of sense because darts is like bang 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 you can see why it's popular snooker obviously it, it, it's 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 kind of I don't know and is anachronism the word yeah I think it might be I mean the, you talk about time the, the, the most famous snooker match of all uh, Steve Davis Dennis Taylor in 1985 took 14 hours and 50 minutes of wow. play so trying to get something like that um, to hold people's attention now but I think it's very difficult for people to realise how enormous snooker was in the 80s. We would, I went to school in Sing Street and we'd go across, beside Cassidy's Pub, there was a little TV shop, and we'd stand outside the window looking at these frames for, for ages and ages. I, I subsequently ended up covering it. I was there when Ken won in 97. But that period beforehand, I mean, you had Alex Higgins was the sort of the father of the revolution, the people's champion. He was this... Um, did you ed- meet Alex, did you? Oh, many, many times subsequently. But at first, as a young fella, he was just this edgy, electrifying genius. Mm. Um, I think if anyone wants to see a masterpiece in sport, he he was 15-14 down to Jimmy White in the 82 semi-final, knowing another mistake um, would would eliminate him from the tournament. He was clearly trolleyed um, and he made a 69 break that's one of the finest sporting exhibitions I've seen in my life and we all rooted for Higgins back then I would have started covering it quite extensively a little bit later and Higgins and Best were always compared you know two Belfast boys with with addiction issues um, I found a huge difference in Best that. was a nice guy Best though. was just a lovely human being when you mm-hmm. sat down with him Alex was deeply unpleasant, aggressive. I, I, I was there at the time the, he was accused of the headbutting the official at, at the Crucible. There was the time he threatened Dennis Taylor that he was going to have him shot. And they then were drawn to play each other in, in goffs at the Irish <laughs> Open, you know. And this again, as Kieran said, you know, this was height, height of the trouble stuff. And it was the Catholic and the Protestant. And it was, it was amped up into something really nasty and unpleasant. And we were backstage when Higgins came out. And again, high as a kite. And there was, there was a flower pot just backstage off. And as he was being introduced, Higgins was urinating into the flower pot backstage. He just, and these were microcosms. I mean, there is no doubt people always talk about the Tiger Woods effect in snooker. He came, or the Tiger Woods effect in golf. He came in and made the thing, made millionaires of so many other people. Higgins had that effect. And back then, these guys were, I mean, Steve Davis was the, the Romford robot, cast as the straight guy to Higgins' wild guy. Um, so much so that Spitting Image, the biggest political satire at the time, had a uh, satirical puppet of Steve Davis as this forever boring guy. But it, it really did reach a height in ninety five or in eighty five when Taylor played Davis, 
and you've got to remember there was no Sky Sports then mm. the only live football that was shown club football in the year was the FA Cup final and the European Cup final the only live GAA were the All-Ireland semis and finals the only live rugby were the old five nations so there was nothing on telly we all ran, went around with tennis rackets in summer when Wimbledon came along we were all Seve Ballesteros the week of the British Open but snooker was on all day every day and it just got huge ratings Kieran talked about the 20 million that watched Barry McGuigan the highest ever rating for anything sport or otherwise on British telly post midnight was that Davis uh, Taylor final and then it's sort of Ireland it became very big in Ireland obviously because of Higgins and that, that morphed into, into Ken Doherty one of life's really good guys um, and in 97 he played Stephen Hendry and Stephen was at the height of his Imperium a bit like the Dubs a couple of years ago mm. he was going for six in a row and Ken beat him 18-12 but the thing that I found most remarkable about covering it you're at a football match you shout and scream when things get tense there's, there's a release valve you're at snooker and it was impossibly tense and you can't Silent. say anything mm. and you know the crucible which is sort of like the gaiety or the Olympia it's just this theatre in the middle of town it's a bit dingy now to be honest yeah, um, been, yeah. but there was just this magical atmosphere in it in it that night I had Sean Kilfeder of the Irish Times and Tony O'Donoghue of RTE were there and you really felt like you were part of it because you got so close to all the protagonists it was great Kieran, at the moment, um, Ronnie and Robertson, I think, are kind of they're more or less joint favourites to win this year's one. Ronnie's on the cusp of beating um, Northern Ireland's Mark Allen. Um, have you been watching it? I haven't watched any of it. That's been honest. And uh, like Roy, I used to watch uh, a huge amount of it years ago. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting sport uh, as a TV phenomenon because it, it all goes back to David Attenborough. Uh, you know, who'd be obviously revered for his wildlife programs, but in another life, he was controller of programs in BBC Two. And when colour television came in, he decided to show snooker because it's you know because that he thought it was a great use of the colour. And it, you know, it, it might never become a TV sport only for that. And you know, Roy refers to it there. You know, when you pretend to be Seve Ballesteros or McEnroe or Bork or whatever, that it's really hard for people of a younger age to realise how sparse the landscape of sport on TV was. Like, one of the reasons I, I have a bit of an antipathy towards horse racing is there might be 20 minutes of soccer on RT a week, and you would have to sit through eight hour, eight races from Haydock on Sports Stadium before the show did so. Mm. And, and, it seemed to, and as a kid, it seems a very dreary sport because you, know, you're, you're, you don't really understand it. So, But... Uh, like it's a funny thing. Like people wouldn't realise how big show jumping was, for example. Like my my sister Deirdre was born in seventy nine, and her first words were "Come on, Eddie!" Wow. Or Eddie Mac, Eddie Mackin and Boomerang, uh, because we were all born at the telly a year later. Daga Khan Cup, and if you ask most people now what Daga Khan Cup is, they wouldn't know. Like it's, but that was a huge deal. Like it's 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 amazing how you latched on to stuff like I remember I used to watch Somerset in County Cricket oh, for hours Joel Garner and Ian Botham and Viv yeah, Richards and, uh, Viv Richards yeah because they had these superstars like and that was a kind of boom type of cricket but uh, it's unthinkable like where I'm from that you would do that but you watch whatever sport was on and snooker and darts benefited from that but I do think like uh, I would know Ken as Roy knows Ken and Roy is such a warm Oh, sorry, Ken is such a... You're, you're, you're not too bad as well, right? You're not too bad as well. I wouldn't go that but far. I mean, Ken, but, is such a, yeah. Yeah, Ken is such a, a decent guy. Like, he's impossible not to warm to. And like, would he tell you... He's so approachable. He would tell you so many great stories over the years. Like, he, was, he, was, he started off as a hustler, you know, in the Stuker Halls here at 14, 15. 
you know, he's great stories about that. All and uh, you know, he would tell me. You remember he gave me a list as to grow. They've all disappeared, and part of it was land prices, because they were like you might have a, a snooker hall on O'Connell Street, you know, and that site is worth millions. So uh, they were all pushed out. So the, a lot of the snooker halls disappeared. He says att- attention spans is definitely an issue with getting people, to, uh, younger people, involved in the sport. But you do need to spend endless hours on the table doing nothing else to get to, to any kind of a level. But I remember he told me a great story. Roy might remember her her name. His mother, I can't, I can't remember her name offhand, Roy. Can you remember his name? I should know it, but I can't think. Yeah, actually, it'll come, it might come to me. But she, she passed away um, a couple of years ago, very sadly. But but uh, Ken told me that she was so nervous when uh, when he was playing. But during the World Championships, her thing was she would go to Houston Station. And whatever the next train was, she'd get the train. And just like, I think for the finalists, she went down to Waterford but the next train from Waterford back. And just to pass the time, something, and she sit there, and she just needed to be away from anywhere. There would be TV or radio or anyone could tell her what was happening. So, But that was a great moment because uh, he really deserved it. And he got the, the you know, the open-top bus to the concert. He got paraded in Old Trafford, which meant the world to him. And it was great to see because uh, really one of the good guys. Yeah, I was in school. I, I remember quite well. And um, the funny thing about the sport is, and people p- will play pool or whatever, and it's essentially the same thing except it's a bigger table. But, like, if, you know, the the enjoyment you can get out of it, I imagine, if you get any way good at it, like, it's such a technical sport and the amazing things you can do with a cue ball. Yeah, I, I the bit about getting very good at it, I can't really answer. <laughs> but, I, I'm totally hypothesising um, here, but, like... We used to go up... Our football team, we were sort of, uh, we'd we'd managed not to go on the beer for two days before a match. And we used to go up and go and play in uh, Potter Snooker Hall up in Crumlin Road, opposite the Gate Bar pub. And there was a guy there, actually, Gay Burns, who who was uh, a professional player. And you'd watch him and the magic stuff he did. And, you know, we'd get the odd 30 break and we were we were ready to, to give up the day job and, and, and take it on. But it touched a lot of people. I mean, it really did. And... Ken came in with me after one of the uh, All-Ireland finals to Briody's pub on Marlborough Street and there'd been any number of sports stars in there and they get a bit of attention. People were queuing for his autograph. Wow. This, honestly, 20, 22, 23 years later, this was a couple of years ago, and he was so, as as Kieran said, he's such a warm, infectious guy. I spent, I spent a good few days over, he's a huge Man United fan in, uh, in Barcelona when they won the the Champions League in 1999 and he'll just sit and tell stories and has this great laugh and love of life and we talked about boxing earlier but a lot of these individual sports where people have to sort of hustle to make it they produce real raw characters who are unafraid of the truth who are authentic The, the, the PR spin hasn't washed over them and I think more and more when you see in big time sports it's hard to get to the essence of people that you really appreciate people when there's when there's that authenticity about them absolutely yeah and um, I've yeah, met Ken myself an absolute gent I think we should move on to the uh, Wimbledon's ban on the Russian and Belarusian players um, I should go to you first Kieran I think this is an absolute disgrace I think if you were to do this um, across the world it's ludicrous yeah, it's you could basically you could essentially ban I mean what Russia has done um, in, 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 sorry is actually in the halfpenny place compared to what other regimes have done and I'm not trying to you know defend Putin in the slightest but like if you go down this road where do you where do you stop yeah. and it's like as if we accept that being Russia you know being Russian and, and being a Russian um, sports person you know you should you know think 
exactly as we think and you should you know denounce the regime and you should do this you should do that and you should you know basically do whatever we think is great in the west um, and yeah. you know I, I just I just think this is absolutely insane yeah and as part of a cycle like it was reported fairly early on in the conflict that um, you know you things like Tchaikovsky was being well, performances were being stopped or, or performances of Swan Lake or Dostoevsky books were being taken out of the library and it was ju- it's just uh, uh, off the wall stuff and this like I'm glad the players bodies in both uh, both the women's and men's game have come out against it because where does it end like there are a lot of aggressive states around the world there are a lot of uh, uh, countries around the world that start wars and you know that cause a huge amount of uh, havoc in other countries you know and are you going to suddenly ban everybody just because they're from that country it's nothing to do with them it's nothing to do with any of these tennis players and it's just uh, I, I, it's just showboating by Wimbledon like, what, what, what is the purpose of this? I really don't understand Roy yeah I mean virtue signalling has become the national sport of, of a lot of places initially you know I've I've been writing opinion columns for about 30 years and one of which we'll get to actually very shortly <laughs> and so we're getting to the crux of the matter um, and one thing you always sort of have to have are your thoughts strident opinions and argue with conviction and you know you reduce the argument to black and white I actually think there is a bit of grey in this um, I read two thought-provoking pieces that had very different views um, over the last couple of days. One in the Washington Post and one by uh, Sean Ingle in The Guardian. And the one in the Washington Post um, suggested there was legitimacy in what's what's going on. Now, I, I tend to side with, with both your arguments, but not with the same conviction. Legitimacy in what, sorry? Well, I, I would look at it, first of all, through the prism of a Ukrainian. And they... Are endure, what they are enduring now and if Putin and this is not an exact comparison I know people will start laughing but Hitler used the 1936 Olympics as a means of glorifying the Reich of proving the Aryan supremacy Jesse Owens was one of those who came along and ruined take down all the anti-Jew signs uh, uh, yeah uh, uh, exactly um, now there is no doubt Putin, in a different forms of sports washing, has used any success by Russian athletes as a form of proving this neo-imperialist theory that there is a superiority. Now, these tennis players have largely opposed the war, some very vocally, and you, it is wrong that they suffer, but there is also collateral damage, and they're suffering in terms of, in terms of multimillionaires missing out on a tournament that is the livelihood, even if they blame, even if they are blameless, to me, doesn't compare with if if, if that gives some solace to a Ukrainian saying who who's been besieged in Mariupol, and people would say there's no equivalency here that that's stretching it, and it is, but that's the point I'm making. I think there is a grey area. Yeah, but Roy, is there not a distinction though? Like I can see a strong case made for, for team, Russian teams. Russian national team yeah. mm. to represent the country. But an individual sport, you're effectively representing. But you can also imagine that he does go and win in Wimbledon. Say, sorry, if 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 you had a a Russian, uh, you know, tennis player going to Wimbledon, what sort of reaction would he get? He wouldn't have a hope of winning anything. Like, well, Medvedev is the number two player in the world. Mm. So, I mean, he he certainly, in terms of ability, does have a chance. Short of him actually denouncing Putin before it starts to give him a chance. I mean, that's where you, you let them compete and let the crowd decide what they want to do. You don't. You can't just say. I mean, how many American athletes could have been? 
banned from any sporting event for what the American no, no, government we, has done over I, the years. I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with any of the points you're making, but we're dealing with this one currently. Mm. And I think if there's an opportunity for Putin to use something uh, domestically to increase his own support, which if, if a Russian went and conquered Wimbledon, look, they tried to stand in our way, he would present it, we won. This is a, another example of Russian greatness. And in the propaganda war, it will be an effective tool for him. I, I would argue on that. I want to bring you in afterwards, Kieran. I would argue that um, Putin can use what Wimbledon is doing more for propaganda purposes than actually any subsequent that's, victory. That's absolutely true. So there is no perfect solution to this. That's why I'm no. saying grey. And I mean, when when I saw the, the Tchaikovsky stuff and books being taken out of libraries... That um, reminds you of the old... Like, basically the Third Reich. It's, like. it's, it's the Third Reich. It's the, it's the Catholic Church grip here yeah. a long time ago. It's censorship, and any form of censorship ultimately ends up self-defeating. And, and sorry, like, you know... My, my father lived in, in England during the Troubles um, he was Irish and you know Irish people were persecuted in England because of what the IRA was doing um, even though you know they, they had nothing to do with it and didn't support it and in fairness Kieran, you can't you can't just like um, paintbrush every Russian in terms of the Putin regime I just I just don't see how this is a good idea no um, and uh, no, no I take on board a lot of what Roy was saying there as well he made good points but I, I, I just think it's such a dangerous precedent. Like, where if you're going to be consistent with this, you know, surely every sporting event will be getting rid of quite a few individuals. You know, like does that mean every Russian footballer that plays outside of Russia can't play for their team anymore? Does it? You know, there's been a lot of acts of American aggression over the years. That you go through the amount of people who have been killed in American drone strikes. There's not a hope any any uh, Americans would be banned from a sporting. Event, you know, so I think it's. Um, there's just a huge lack of consistency with this. Like I think it's latching on. I I, I understand the argument that you know Putin definitely has used sport as a weapon. You know, all along, all along through his tenure, through hosting major events, uh, through uh, then there, there was a state-sponsored doping regime. Mm. It was all the the aim was just to uh, uh, gain soft power by Russian success in sport. You know by any means necessary. So I wouldn't have much sympathy for. For Russian sport generally, but uh, it's uh, probably trickier than I thought. The more you think about it, it's a tricky right. situation, but I still my instinct is wibbled in a row. And and and, and I don't com- I don't in any way disagree with that. It's just it is one where I feel there's a grey area. There was an interesting point made in that Wall Street or in that Washington Post um, opinion piece where they talked about in any war, citizens, the notion that ordinary citizens of a country, even if they're innocent, don't suffer. Um, can be exposed like the reparations that the defeated nations in, in World War Two. these huge reparations that had to be paid they were paid by taxpayers money so essentially the punishment for autocratic barbarity fell back on the ordinary citizen who may have had nothing to do with it mm-hmm. like it or dislike it there's a guilt by association even if they're entirely innocent mm-hmm yeah, and I, I mean, it's extremely complex in the sense of, um, you know, we're and also we're getting very much one side of the story here, particularly from a national broadcaster. I, I would, you know, we, we need to hear more from in, within Russia, and we need to hear more from why this is happening. And like, as you know, essentially, I'm just saying we are getting a biased version of events. Why does Wimbledon get involved though? Like, why does Wimbledon get involved in something like this? Because, because, because you're setting this ridiculous precedent here. I, yeah, they can, maybe they can. I, I, I think it's absurd. Um, let's move on to hurling. Let's oh, move yeah. on to hurling. Um, Limerick 
there was this notion that Limerick might be slightly vulnerable after the league and they seem to put that to bed last weekend as the Warford game is going to be fascinating yeah, I, look Limerick on weekends like last week they resemble a team you know who've brought down the curtain on any any prospect of defeat mm. you watch them and you think they've just a little bit too much of everything physically tactically um, they have I mean you get guys like Garrod Hegarty and Kyle Hayes who are these supersized flamethrowers they have the physique of a, a rugby back row and yet they've the, the touch and stick work of an old style corner forward um, Keen Lynch even on bended knee last week was able to produce a moment of wonder that would just have you gurgling half broken herd yeah yeah, they, they, say that, yeah. They, 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 I think I think essentially a moment of truth has arrived. I was going to say in the hurling summer, but we're only in April. Waterford moved with such impressive momentum throughout the league. Um, I, I, I think there's a huge amount good in what happened to Waterford last week, even though Tipperary gave them a hard game. Tipperary were always going to do something in the first match. Hurling is sort of how they measure themselves. They've someone there like Noel McGrath, who I was describing during the week as sort of hurling's moderage, this timeless mm. creative force. But I think Waterford, need, the, the fact that they were able to withstand that early barrage and come back after all the league hype really spoke to me of a team that's on a huge upward curve. The fact that they, again, have kept Austin Gleeson, Jamie Barron in reserve, that they come on. But they've lost the last two games to Limerick by 11 points. If that happens again tonight, we can put the green and white ribbons on Liam McCarthy now. So I think Waterford had a great white hope for the hurling summer. Obviously, the the gap back to 90 and 59 makes them every neutral's choice, I suppose. But if Limerick blow them away with the ruthless intent that they just dismantled uh, Cork last week, it's very hard to see how this summer is in any way competitive. Kieran, would you agree? Uh, yeah, I think I think Waterford are the only hope of taking them down. You know, unless Kilkenny can come up with something uh, unexpected, like. I think Kilkenny are the only team in Leinster with any hope, but I think Waterford and Limerick. You're right now, all the way together, yeah? Uh, uh, as a threat, all Ireland threat? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I wouldn't we'll give them a hope. We'll That's been honest. We'll see about but, that. Uh, yeah. yeah, but uh, Limerick Waterford, uh, it's funny because they're, they're two counties of huge affection for, and it goes back to because where I'm from is definitely not hurling country uh, by any means. So the first hurling game I was at in my life, I reported on. That was a Limerick Waterford chapter game 30 years ago when I was a freelance. And I, I, I have an affection for both counties since then, I think, maybe because of that. But but it's um, it's a strange situation because Waterford are now kind of where Limerick were for years. Like, Waterford, Limerick went so long being seen as a team that will flop in Croke Park in the big days. They'll, get, they'll be nearly men. They'll get so close, but, you know, so they'll still be a long way away. And, and now they're seen as a force like Jim Gavin's Dublin, that they're just... Uh, this juggernaut to smash everything in their path. But like Waterford, for all their progress, have been in two finals in over 60 years, two All-Ireland finals. You know, they didn't come anywhere near close to being competitive in them. So we still have a lot to prove. They, you know, they have a lot of the raw material needed to challenge Limerick. But I think it's overstated. Their panel strength is overstated. That really, they only got into the game last week. What, you know, people say, oh, look at the panel they brought in, the guys they brought on. It shows how strong they are. But the guys they put on, like Tiger Tabarka and, um, oh, sorry, Austin Gleason and Jamie Barnett, like they would be starting a fully fit. They'd probably be starting today. So it doesn't, uh, like the guys that started ahead of them were found a bit lacking. So I, I think I'd be, I'd be interested, like, they could have three meetings this year. They could meet in the Monster Final, they could meet in the All Ireland Final. It wouldn't mm. surprise me at all. 
But I think this is what we're worried about with Down in America. You know, they have to get close at least. I, I, I think Kieran has nailed it there. I mean, we've seen with Liverpool and Man City what a rivalry can do for a sport. And they're potentially playing three times in this very concentrated time period if they play again in the Champions League final. Which they probably will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think a lot of us would have a lot of time for Waterford. I, I've i sort of been half supporting them in hurling since the time of John Milan and Tony Brown and Ken McGrath. I, I love those guys because they all played without helmets. They were sort of swashbuckling musketeers who died, went out and died on their sword. And they have a couple of players like that now with Austin Gleeson most notably who ironically maybe needs to actually just concentrate on the hurling side of the game because he gets distracted but a phenomenal talent up there with Keen Lynch and Tony Kelly as as guys who can just take the game to another level but I think a lot of people I admire Limerick and what they've done hugely I mean it, it started after their strike their players strike in 2010 when they got the McManus is involved and they got their coaching structures in place and they've they've really invested 10 years in that. I mean, Vincent Hogan actually has a very interesting piece on that today and the rest of the counties are playing catch-up but as it stands at the moment, I think Waterford are the only hope. Perhaps Kilkenny, Cody managed to inflict their only uh, competitive knockout defeat over the last four years but it'd be very difficult for them to do that but I think we'd all like to see Waterford at least challenge them absolutely right off Galway at Chapur we're going to go to a couple of previews now of the games on at 3 o'clock um, before that um, it's ended up 3-1 at the Emirates so Manchester United's top four ambitions are effectively with O'Leary in the grave at this stage they are done um, so it looks like Arsenal Spurs are battling it out for that uh, fourth uh, place in the Champions League next year let's go first to uh, Man City Watford Adam Jury it's no less than six changes for Man City from their midweek win over Brighton. Three of them up front as Jesus, Sterling and Grealish come in for Foden, Bernardo Silva and Mares. In defence, Diaz and Zinchenko start over Ake and Stones, while Fernandinho replaces Gundogan in midfield. Watford make three changes from their loss to Brentford, King replacing João Pedro up front, while Ngakir and Cleverly come in for Femenia and Kutschka. It's Man City versus Watford at the Etihad. Shane Pennington is at Leicester, Aston Villa. Leicester boss Brendan Rodgers makes four changes from the side that drew one all at Everton on Wednesday night. In come James Justin, Kaglastiontu, Patson Daka and Adabola Luckman. They replace Ricardo Pereira, Johnny Evans, Kalecci Niacho and Harvey Barnes. Jamie Vardy is back on the bench after injury. Whilst for Aston Villa, Stephen Gerrard makes two changes from the side that were thrashed 4-0 by Tottenham last time out. In come Ashley Young and Leon Bailey. They replace Luca Dean and Danny Ings. At the King Power Stadium, it's Leicester and Aston Villa. Yeah, and Newcastle, who've absolutely bombed up the table uh, take on Norwich who are obviously going down and at that game we have Guy Swindles Norwich make just one change from the defeat at Manchester United last time out for the visit of Newcastle. Christopher Zimmerman is in for Ben Gibson in defence. He drops to the bench alongside Max Ahrens and Brandon Williams, who might have thought they'd be in the starting eleven. Newcastle boss Eddie Howe said he'd shuffle his side for this one and is as good as his word, with four changes from the side that beat Crystal Palace in midweek. Income, LaSalle's, Willock, Sean Longstaff and former Canary Jacob Murphy. In for Shah, Shelby, Almiron and Wood, all named amongst the substitutes. It's Norwich Newcastle at Carrow Road. 
Yeah, we have about five minutes with the lads, and there's only one place to finish, and this is your... <laughs> I mean, let's all have a five minutes of self-reflection of men in their middle age or pushing on beyond middle age or whatever we're at. Um, you're, a bit, you're a bit younger than us, Joe. I'm 40 this year. Um, yeah. So that if that isn't middle age... It's um, youth. Positive, shining it youth. Says, I, I guarantee you, Johnny, it's young. I wouldn't mind. I, yeah, nah, I'm not sure. Um... Anyway, I yeah, we'll, we'll say maybe at 40 then it's middle age, but I'm in, in, in her 30s at the moment, I suppose, so I'll go with that. Okay, Roy, I have to, I'm um, just trying to find um, the, the quote I have from the article here for our talking points. And this is an article that you had uh, last week um, in which you're essentially talking about your, the difficulty you have in giving up the good things in life. Am I I'm paraphrasing there? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I made a huge mistake uh, last week on Good Friday feeling good about life. I stood on the weighing scales and um, essentially I convinced myself that I was the product of a one night stand between a a breakfast roll and a keg of stout. (laughs) Um, It was during, I've I've always had uh, an inclination towards the heavier side since I stopped playing. I used to play every sort of sport and stopped playing. I had problems with my back and I've a gluttonous appetite for life. Um, uh, It would hardly be a state secret to say that Bar stools are my favourite place in the world. I love old style pubs and I love pints of porter sitting there and just taking in the social history that these places represent. But obviously there's a there's a flip side to that and there's I'm fifty three and there's as you put on pounds and there are health implications, there are energy implications and there are huge self-esteem uh, issues because when you're walking around, you're carrying a lot of weight and it's not something that people my age talk about much. And I, I'm not particularly into image or fashion, as most people would know, but it does sort of puncture your your sense of self. Your psyche takes a bit of a blow when you're when you're carrying weight. And but the flip side of that is there's I find huge mental health benefits and being out and socialising and doing those things that carry implications, I really struggle to know how you get the balance right because to get myself back to anything approaching fighting weight, I'd have to stop doing the things that make me happy. Uh, I was sitting on a stool in an intoxicated condition in Grogan's licensed premises. Adjacent stools bore the forms of Brinsley and Kelly, my two true friends. Three of us were occupied in putting glasses of stout into the interior of our bodies and expressing by fine disputation the resulting sense of physical and mental well-being. The stout was of superior quality, soft against the tongue, but sharp upon the orifice of the throat, softly efficient in its magical circulation throughout the conduits of the body. Fortunately, that wasn't actually the man to my left uh, that was Flan O'Brien but uh, you can kind of see what he's getting at and you can kind of see what Roy's getting at as well Kieran. I was actually going to say I thought it was Roy and I was going to say that sounds a bit like that. <laughs> it, does, it could have been Roy yeah 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 no, no, Flan uh, O'Brien was always a pleasure uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he no, actually Flan like, used to play drives himself but uh, yeah yeah indeed but uh, like I'd be two I, I'd be roughly the same age as uh, Roy I'd be two years old at 55 and uh, like well, one of the things that really strikes you is, like all of us, you know, you lose people before your time. Like you, probably, you know, you lose family or friends of your twenties or thirties. You don't expect to lose, but when you get to this age, you find it's more common. Like you hear, you know, you bump into somebody and they say, "Did you hear about your man? You know, he's been diagnosed with cancer or you know, he had a heart attack." You know, the, the, so you be, do become more conscious of your mortality. And you know, particularly during lockdown, I got in the habit of having a few bottles of beer at home. 
fairly regularly, like most nights. And uh, as you get older, you do find hangovers far harder to deal with and it affects your sleep more. So I've stopped drinking with home completely. And I was thinking, well, I just knock the drink in the head, get a bit older, just stay healthier. But I don't want to give up, as Roy said, the social part. I want to keep pubs. Like, so that when I, if I'm in Donegal, you know, I meet friends and have a few pints. Like, I don't want to be sitting there with a glass of water for the night. You know, I, I, like, I still think that's, it is very important for your mental health. Like, I can cut back by the drink by not drinking at home, but I still want the pubs to be part of my life because I think they are important. They, 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 in moderation, there's a very, very positive thing. Yeah, and in in fairness, Roy, like JD walked into the office there a couple of weeks ago, and I was struck by how much he lo- he's clearly lost weight, and um, this is no doubt down to the fact that he's you know it wasn't only booze as well. It was like he cut out a lot of um, these things in life, but I suppose the key then is to maintain that rather than celebrate it by going to the pub. Yeah, it's funny. I used to meet John quite a bit in uh, in McDade's, and I was in here a couple of weeks ago when he sent out the tweet about his uh, his weight loss and his his fitness regime and you could sense his delight his actual joy mm. in himself and he he was in a very very good place um i I, I never drink at home and ironically during the first lockdown I went three months without without any drink and I lost two and a half stone and you have more energy Did you, yeah 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 and I found it easy to do because to me, it's the combination of pub and pint, mm. one without mm. the other. And I've no interest in sort of suburban pubs, you know, those awful weather spoons, that sort of stuff. It's the Palace Bar, it's Neary's, it's Kyo's, the Long Hall, Mulligan's, Briotis. These places that to me are sort of social museums. They're part, they, they've, there's a great, um, a great sign, a quote from Con Houlihan, uh, behind the bar in the palace, a bird is known by his song, a man by his conversation. And I, I, my favourite, I set myself a target every year to try and read 200 books in a year. And there's nothing I like better than going in a couple of afternoon pints and just losing yourself in a book, listening to the conversations around you. And honestly, if I didn't do that, I would be a basket case. I, I live on my nerves at the best of times. But those pints... We, we tend to forget that, particularly clinical analysis of health tends to forget sometimes the mental health benefits that you get from just unwinding. We're all mortal anyway. We're going to die regardless of how we live life. But there's almost a squeezing out of the joyous part now to try and extend the misery almost. Mm. I, I'd like to disassociate off the ball from everything he said there, <laughs> but I completely agree with him. Um, thanks for coming in. <laughs> Kieran. it's been great having you on. No bother. Thanks, boys. After the break, David Jennings talks racing.